Oh, man, thank you, Val. I can see a lot of clapping. Uh, that was a real blessed time. Thank you. And uh, thank you for the worship so much. Um, so uh, we are um, about to approach the talk, but also it's been a little bit quiet on the chat. That's probably because I didn't prompt any of you to uh, participate in the chat. So please participate. If there's anything that struck you, you know, even not just during the service, but during the last week or so, please do share on the chat and, and Caroline will wrap up at the end. But thank you so much, Val, for that. It's a real blessing to worship together as a church on a Sunday morning. Um, so now I'm going to hand over to, uh, to Greg and he has um, a talk for us. Uh, and I just would like to pray for us before I hand over. So, Lord, I just pray that you would give, give Greg the words to say and the message to share. And I pray that you would prompt him as he talks where he is perhaps restraining himself from uh, uh, diverging. But if it's in your heart, I pray that you just sort of give him that freedom to share with us what you'd like to communicate to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, John. Licence to ramble, eh? Um, I'm just... Right. Sorry about that. Um, one of the difficulties for a preacher of preaching through the script, through scripture rather than preaching topically uh, is that it forces you to confront issues that crop up in the text rather than just speaking about things that interest you or fruitlessly seeking relevance. It's also one of the reasons why I'm a strong advocate of um, ad what's called expository preaching. You have to deal with what scripture actually says rather than lining up a set of verses to reinforce your own ideas or what you want to say. And today we come to one of those passages that causes all sorts of controversy. Uh, and before we launch into it, I want to say that there are people um, on both sides of the debate around this text for whom I have the greatest respect. Uh, adopting one view or another doesn't make you a rabid conservative or a floppy liberal with no regard for scripture. There are godly people on both sides with a high regard for scripture. Uh, I just want to say that at the outset and actually disagreeing well is one of the things the church needs to learn to do better. Um, so I'm going to read the passage. We're looking at Ephesians 5 verses 21 through to 6 verse 9. So I'm just going to put the text up on the screen here. You should be able to see it now. Um, it says this, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body 
but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church for we're members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them since you know that he who is both their, ma their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favouritism with him. Amen. Well, there are two fairly controversial bits in that passage, um, and we'll try and deal with them in a moment. Before I go any further, I do want to say that, whoops, I've just lost my notes. Before, uh, before I go any further, I want to say that by tackling some of these tricky passages, I set myself up for all sorts of unhelpful comeback. Um, so please do bear in mind that I'm trying to approach these sections with integrity and searching for truth. I might get it wrong, but I do try to go wherever the truth takes me in these matters. Uh, and sometimes that is at cost to myself. Now we make a mistake if we read this passage on its own. It fits into a wider context within the letter to the Ephesians. And there are a number of, um, of things I need to deal with. And I'm afraid this will be slightly technical today, but I need to deal with some things before we delve into the text itself. Now, I know some of you love it when I get technical and some of you really hate it when I get technical. So this morning, I'm afraid the former will enjoy it, the latter won't. Um, and I make no apology for that um, because actually sometimes God speaks through the technical. Um, God is a God of all truth, but I'm, I'm going to be in danger of rambling if I do that before. Uh, so you've heard me say it before, but I'm going to say it again. Context really, really, really matters. The church gets into all sorts of problems when people pluck odd verses out of context and then try to build something on them by stringing them together with other verses taken out of context. Unfortunately, that's happened to this passage in more ways than one. And when we prepare to preach on a passage, one of the things we do or should do is to look for the context. The art of biblical interpretation requires us to look big and at the big picture and the bigger context and then to home in onto the details and then to go back out and see how that fits into the bigger context. And the process of of interpreting scripture is all about going 
into detail, out to the big picture, into detail and out to the big picture. We have to do both if we're to be good interpreters of scripture. So looking at the wider context, we saw in what Ed said some weeks ago and what I said a couple of weeks ago, that Paul in this section of the letter is emphasizing that people who are followers of Jesus should be distinctive by living differently and by living new lives. And there is a clear structure to this section, which is probably best emphasized by putting it on the screen. So I apologize for the heavier than usual use of PowerPoint this morning, but here we go. Um, first of all, the original text wasn't divided into chapters and paragraphs and verses. And the NIV translators here have gone for the best paragraph division they could. But in the process of going for a good division, it hides something of the structure of what's being written. And to see this, we need to go back to verse 15, which we looked at last or the time before, the week before last. In verse 15, Paul tells his audience to be careful how they live. And that's the kind of heading that we're working under here. Be careful how you live. Uh, and we covered that last time. Now, in Greek, verses 15 through to 21 are all one sentence, although, as with everything, some scholars would argue otherwise. A number of things hang off this command to be careful how they walk. And grammatically, for those who are interested in grammar, there are four participles in this section. And a, a participle essentially is a word that describes an action. It usually ends with an ing in English. That's a gross oversimplification for the English teachers among you, but this, the purpose of this is not to have a grammar section. But there are four participles in this section and in this one sentence in Greek describing how we should be living. The first one is speaking to one another in the beginning of verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. The second one is singing in your hearts to the Lord. Uh, the third one is giving thanks for everything to God always. And then the final one, which is in verse 21, is submitting to one another in reverence for Christ. So there are four things here that Paul talks about in, in being careful how we live. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Singing in our hearts always to God. Giving thanks always for everything and submitting to one another in reverence for Christ. Uh, and that, that I, I, in some ways I apologize for laboring that, in others I don't apologize for laboring that because it's important. Um, now the NIV in going for clarity loses the continuity of this submitting to one another by starting it as a new paragraph with a new heading above it. Uh, and that's part of the reason, actually it's a very good example of why choosing the Bible that you choose will affect what you end up believing. Um, the way that the, the NIV has translated this has, has probably not helped. So in going for clarity, they've lost the continuity of this submitting to one another by starting it as a new section, but it isn't. It's part of that be careful how you live that we looked at last time. And if, you, if we don't remember that, we're in danger of forgetting what the next bit is talking about. 
Now, apologies if that was a bit technical. Um, I've alienated half the congregation and others are really riveted now. Um, but these technical details are actually important and particularly here as it affects how we read this passage. So at the beginning of the passage that we've read today, we were told to submit to one another or we were told that submitting to one another is part of that thing of living carefully. Now, there's a great deal of debate about the word submit here, uh, and I'm not going to go into it. If you want to read up on it, please don't ask Google, read a proper commentary. Um, there's a great deal of nonsense on the internet around this topic. So don't try and find out from Google what this passage is talking about. Essentially, the word used for submit relates to being in proper order. It comes from a group of words that are about proper order. It's actually the word that we get our word taxonomy from. For those of you who are either in IT or study humanities will have come across that word. Um, later, the injunctions to slaves and children tell them to obey. This one doesn't. And before we get to the actual commands, we also have to understand something about a household in the first century Roman Empire. Uh, in this world, the man was head of the house and he had complete authority in his house. He had authority over his wife. He had complete authority over his children and complete authority, in fact, the authority of life and death over the household servants who would normally have been slaves. And to limit his authority in that context would have been extraordinary although that is precisely what Paul does here. Um, so Paul is taking a major risk by writing what he writes here, as he could be understand, understood as undermining Greco-Roman society. And don't forget that he was actually a prisoner of Rome when he wrote this. So he's writing from imprisonment, something that undermines the society in which he's living or would be viewed as undermining it. Um, so the biggest interpretive decision that we have to make when we read this passage is whether these commands of Paul are for all time or were specific to the society in which he lived or the recipients of this letter. Uh, one of them is probably not for the world we live in, or probably certainly, almost certainly not for the world we live in, but we'll come to that in a minute. That's got you all really guessing now. Um, so the big, big message of this section is that we are to be in mutual submission to one another. That is the big message of this section. That's the fourth one of those four participles we talked about in this section on living carefully. The big key message under which everything else sits is that we are to be in submission to one another. And Paul then goes on to give three examples and there's a common structure to the way he gives each of these three examples, although he expands on what he says about husbands and wives. Each example Paul gives addresses first the person who is to submit, but then the person having the authority. Um, so we'll come now to the one that is really controversial nowadays, husbands and wives. There are a few things to note here. 
The first is that there was some evidence in 1 Timothy that there were women in the church of Ephesus, assuming that's where this letter is primarily addressed, who were causing problems and behaving badly. Um, if you remember in 1 Timothy, he, he rebukes some women who are going around causing trouble, as he also probably rebukes some men for getting excessively angry. Um, secondly, Ephesus is the center of Artemis worship. Artemis was a female goddess who had a largely female priesthood. So it was quite a female dominated religion. Um, there's also in this section on husbands and wives an emphasis on husbands treating their wives well and giving themselves for them in the same way that Christ gave himself for the church. Um, Sorry, I've just lost some lost something on my screen there, which I need in a moment. Um, and we need to remember that this comes in a passage on mutual submission, submit to one another. Um, one of the reasons some people have challenged me on this, when I conduct weddings, I actually nowadays I won't conduct a wedding where the wife promises to obey um, because actually that goes beyond what scripture is saying. Scripture at the very strongest here is saying that wives should submit to their husbands. It does not say they should obey. It does say that children should obey and it says that slaves should obey. It doesn't say that wives should obey. Um, so actually that vow that we've inserted often into the wedding vows that where a wife promises to obey her husband is going beyond what scripture says. Um, so that's the first one. Um, the second one is parents and children. John's asked his children to pay attention at this point. Children are told to obey their parents, linking it to the Ten Commandments and pointing out that this is the first commandment that comes with a promise. But then fathers or parents, I personally think it's parents, but it's translated fathers in some versions, are warned not to exasperate their children. So actually what Paul is doing here, as he has with husbands and wives, he's put a limitation on the authority that a husband in a Greco-Roman household had over his wife. He's also putting limitations on the way that husbands or fathers exercise that authority over their children. He warns them not to exasperate them. I certainly exasperated my children quite a few times, I'm sure. And then the third category that he goes on to um, is, sorry, I should have, I have a slide here that I should have put up. Um, I'll just do it now. The third category he goes on to talk about is masters and slaves. So finally, he commands slaves to be diligent and faithful in serving their masters as though they're serving God himself. And then he warns masters to do likewise. And he adds that they shouldn't threaten their slaves. He stresses that they have the same Lord in heaven. So note that by saying this, he's actually emphasizing the humanity of the slave and his or her standing before God. This was radical in that world. Doesn't sound it nowadays, but in that world, Paul was undermining part of the very fabric of the society in which he lived and was undermining the authority of a man in his house to be able to do whatever he wanted. He couldn't. He was putting clear limitations 
around the authority that the man had. Now, I just want to draw some bigger conclusions before circling back to revisit probably the most controversial of these three. Paul has picked out a number of ways in which we're to be marked out as the people of God, the singing, the speaking, the giving thanks and the submitting to one another. In our section that we've read today, he gives three examples of how this mutual submission is to be worked out in the world in which they live, in the area of the relationship between husbands and wives, in the area of the relationship between children and their parents, and in the area of the relationship between slaves and their masters. In each case, he is radical in telling the person, a man in each case here, who would normally be in authority in that world to restrain their use of that authority and to treat the other with respect and love. I'm not actually going to tell you where I stand on the contemporary debate um, about husbands and wives. Um, I think most of you probably know but I don't think that is the major point here. That's why I'm, I'm not going to get into it because I don't want to get involved in arguments about it. I don't think it's the major point here, but in the evangelical world, we've made it the major point um, and misread the passage in my view. Uh, I'm gonna leave you with a question instead. Um, and my question is, if Paul were writing today, and wanted to encourage us to live distinctively from the world around us to reflect what God has done in our lives, what three examples would he use of mutual submission? Because this passage is all about, or this section of the passage, is all about our submission to one another, submitting to one another, submission being mutual and voluntary. Uh, and I've heard too many examples over the last 40 or 50 years of enforced submission where I've heard people telling other people they have to submit to them. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Um, but the question I want to ask is if Paul were writing this today to us in 21st century England, what three examples of mutual submission would he use in writing this passage? Um, I think that for us is key to how we interpret this passage. I'm not going to give you any answers. Um, I haven't actually thought of three myself, but if you meet in small groups this week, you might like to think about that. Or if you go for a walk with someone, you might like to think about it. But what examples would Paul use now? Because actually how we apply this now is what is important. Um, so I'm just I'm just going to pray at this point um, before I, otherwise I will wade into some further controversy and I don't want to do that. Um, but I will pray now and then I'll hand back to John. So, Father, we we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the way that your word does speak to us and does speak to us today. Uh, and Father, we we do want to pray that we will be people who live distinctively that we will be people who encourage one another in, in you by speaking psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, by giving 
by speaking in, in ways that are saturated with your word. We want to be people who are constantly singing in our hearts to you. And we want to be people who are characterized by thankfulness, by giving thanks to you. And Lord, I do want to pray that you will go before us and with us as we work out for ourselves what that mutual submission means in the world in which we live now. Uh, Lord, we, we do want to pray that we will be able to live authentically and for our lives to be distinctive in the way that we live them. And Lord, will you help us to, to do that, to be careful how we live. In Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>